Welcome to the Real Health Voice, Episode 65, Nursing While Black. I am Beth O'Connor, your host. We discuss real health issues at the grassroots level and how state and federal policies play out in our local communities. This episode is a little different because I am not introducing our guest. I can tell you that she lives and works in rural Virginia and is a nurse. However, we are withholding her name due to her concern of retaliation from her employer for sharing her job experience. Welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, um, thanks for having me. So let's start with some background. How did you first become interested in nursing? I was a patient myself and I was on the opposite side and I learned the difference between, you know, a, a good nurse and a not-so-good nurse, and I decided to join and help from within. Yeah, because we know a good nurse can make all the difference in your experience. Yes, and unfortunately, I felt that one of the incidents in which my nurse could have done better, that bias was a factor. Um, And the particular facility I um, I was at... I do not believe had any ethnic nurses or and uh, very few providers. Mm-hmm. So when you say bias, you're specifically talking about racial bias towards you as an African-American patient. Yes. Um, the maternal mortality rate for um, black women already says that. And actually, at the time that this happened, I was pregnant. I was almost a statistic. Mm-hmm. And... You know, that's, we've talked about this on our podcast several times. You've had many episodes on systemic racism and what it means for patient outcomes. You know, as you said, certainly maternal health we know is an issue um, and all sorts of other health indicators. But what does systemic racism mean for you as a nurse? It, it's a problem that some, I, I'm trying to fight it every day, but at least want my patients to feel safe. Um, Right now I'm working, I have three jobs right now, and one of the places I'm working um, is more urban, and so I get more African-American patients, and I see a difference in their demeanor when I walk into a room and introduce myself. I can tell that they sometimes feel safer, and a lot oftentimes will tell me that they've tried to explain certain symptoms or certain problems or something and felt disregarded. Um, And then I have some that are just proud um, and will tell me to take it as far as I can go. (laughs) And that they're just happy to see me there. Um, Excellent. And nurses often advocate for their patients. Do you feel that you often have to go even further for African-American patients? There have been times. Um, they're, um, especially black women seem seemingly are accused of hyperbolizing symptoms and it's just seen as a personality issue instead of seeing, treating it as a chief complaint. And there have been times I've had to go to bat and I've had to call a provider multiple times, or I've had to stand in the gap and, or say, Hey, this was me before. I think that this is what's going on. Uh, or even say, I'm, I'm putting a note in about this whole conversation because I don't feel that this will go well. 
Can you give me an example of something that may have happened? I had a patient who was having a lot of neurological symptoms, and the doctors were saying that the pretty much they were accusing her of faking it. And I said, this may be myasthenia gravis or Bell's palsy. I don't think she's faking it. And I actually went and spoke to the woman and everything. They tried to say it was a psych issue and actually were, were ready to discharge her as a psych patient. I actually talked to her. The patient is actually a nurse, was actually a nurse. A long-time nurse, a veteran nurse. If she were to try to fake something, she would know what to fake. Um, but, yeah, some of the symptoms didn't make sense for some of the diagnoses, but they they didn't even run a lot of tests, no imaging or anything, um, to even confirm what they were thinking. They thought it was just her personality because there were times... Which, understandably so, when you're in a hospital, you're not at your best. Nobody is. Um, I still don't know what ended up happening to her, but I at least did get um, get a few labs drawn, a few more labs drawn, and some of them were off. She did have some some labs that were indicative that there was more going on than just her having some than wanting attention. So really, some basic direct communication, you know, may have prevented something really bad from happening. And that was all it took, was talking to the person one-on-one. Yes, because, you know, I go back to my, one of my incidents. Um, When I came to a facility I'd never been to, because I called an ambulance and they had to take me to the closest place. I had chest pain and shortness of breath. I was pregnant. I had been on bed rest. I arrived to the ER, and the first doctor was actually pretty good and seemed concerned. But then, of course, whenever you have a pregnant woman, there's a big liability. People don't like to touch pregnant women. So the doctor admitted me to ops, and that is where my problems began. The doctor that was in the ops unit didn't even believe that I was pregnant, despite the fact that I'd already been treated for the pregnancy had been confirmed and had already had complications that had me on bed rest for said pregnancy. Um, That doctor failed to ask me my family history as the previous doctor had to learn that there was a clotting disorder in my family history. That doctor completely disregarded the possibility that I had any clots, refused a CT, and sent me home with a high heart rate and a high blood pressure and shallow breathing and still having the chest pain. And I went to a different facility the next day and my regular doctor ordered a CT scan and found multiple bilateral pulmonary emboli. I had clots in both of my lungs and had what's called an infarction, um, tissue death in my right lung because I'd had no intervention. And so easily dismissed unfortunately yes um and it had i not gone to that other facility i i would have died there's there was no other way around that that uh that was a death sentence um 
And having had I had blood thinner sooner, the infarction possibly could have been prevented as well. Um, but, you know, I was completely disregarded and it was, I was told that it was just pregnancy symptoms and I was fine. Um, oftentimes we're just, the, the doctors seem to not, not see that the patient may not know medicine, but the patient knows their body better than we do. Absolutely. And looking from the other direction, have you had issues with patients treating you poorly as a nurse? Yes, um, a few times. And I often run into them thinking I'm a CNA. Ah. I've actually had a patient upset that I was handling their fluids because CNAs should not do that, despite the fact that I had introduced myself as their nurse. Um, And some of the facilities I work at have color-coordinated scrubs. So, you know, it's a bit easier to discern who everybody is with the color-coordinated outfits. One of my jobs, um, we do not have colors, so it's a little more understandable to not know who anybody is. But I have had patients who have been there for two or three days suddenly want their purse taken to security. I have had patients who will be watching the news and something race-based will be on and they will just sort of grunt or, you know, look displeased. Um, it, it's, um, yes, I have had patients that I could tell were not, were not happy about me being in charge of their care. There was, um, one time that actually it was a victory moment because the they wanted a different nurse and the charge nurse was an African American woman. The doctor caring for them was an African American and the CNA that day was an African American. So we pretty much told them that, you know, there's not a we don't have the staffing to be able to provide him all white care. Nor should you. No. So, luckily, some of the facilities locally do have a policy that they do not conform to biases by patients for in cases like that. Now, you alluded to this earlier, but, you know, someone is a patient in a hospital, they're likely there for a good reason. Yes. Um, and I know that sometimes white white people can be dismissive of those who feel they've been treated poorly because of their skin color and say, oh, you know, you don't know that happened because of racism. Maybe the person was just having a bad day. Yes. How would you respond to that comment? I've gotten that comment quite a few times because that seems to be, you know, a go-to to is to it's anything but racism. Um. So I've I've often had to say, well, then what reason do you think it is? Or, you know, I have to point out the fact that, you know, when it happens more than once, it's a pattern. Or that it's, it seems to happen to all of us at some point. So we don't get to pretend that it's an isolated event. Um, but that is a difficulty I actually face. Um, and it's, it's hard to respond to that, but I just try to bridge the gap and explain to them 
know this has happened to me. Because sometimes they dismiss it as low education. Sometimes they dismiss it as several other things. And I point to, no, do you think this would happen to you? And we've, we've heard the peer-reviewed studies that have shown that providers are less likely to give pain medicine to black people. And, you know, I don't think that, you know, I call it bias because we're ingrained with it. It's, it is taught to us, and there are a lot of things in society and in what we see every day in our classes that kind of put an idea in our head, and it's not necessarily all just bad things or that we're worse or low quality. But I will say that I think we're more so used to seeing black suffering that people think that we're just more, um, I guess, more apt to it, more, uh, or more tough or something. Because we see images of black men being beaten constantly. And it's taken in as a norm. We see the pictures, you know, from slavery of the, of the raw backs from being whipped. We see, you know, how black women were never treated as, you know, damsels. And um, we were out working the fields too back then. And, you know, a lot of, there's a lot of jokes about manly features and black women and all of these things. and the the tough the strong black woman um archetype i think is somewhat detrimental so even benevolent racism can cause a bias that i think is hurting us in healthcare i think you know j- just as you know if someone's got this mindset that you know not even consciously but oh you know they they developed a, to- a tolerance for it yes. i think that's going to detract from their medical experience yes Uh, yeah i i believe that you know we we have to come to some kind of consensus that you know um and sometimes we're we're taught to hotter pain as well uh, culturally we just you know um we discuss our pain physically and mentally oftentimes in safer spaces so you know a black man may be telling you he's in pain and he's not grimacing at the way you think he should, but, you know, he's really hurting, but his face may not show it because from a young age, he's been taught, don't let them see it. Don't dare be vulnerable. Yes. So looking at the present environment, how has COVID affected your work? It has absolutely changed so much the from i remember when covid first began and walking down the empty hallways everything was so glossy and shiny because of all the cleaning and feeling just so lonely um not seeing the get patients guests and realizing that we were their only person at that point and the patient the intimacy of the relationship with our patients became so much more and we realized how much more we meant to that patient at that time that was a great responsibility 
at that point in my career. Um, I think that's what affected a lot of new grads because people who came in during this, um, because they don't know anything else. Um, and then it was, it was scary because I worked and cardi- I have a cardiac background, and a lot of COVID symptoms present as cardiac symptoms. So we ended up having a lot of patients with that came in with seemingly cardiac problems that turned out to have COVID, that ended up um, being COVID positive. So it was scary because we knew that we're a clean floor. We take care of cardiac patients who are very vulnerable, but we also knew that we would end up with patients with it so you know thinking about cardiac symptoms looking like COVID symptoms and vice versa do you think that maybe has contributed to some of the mindset that you know COVID isn't real that the people think they're having different symptoms yes I have had people tell me in my scrubs people that I've known for a long time I think it's fake one of the first positive cases that we saw actually was on our floor and they thought she had congestive heart failure and she tested positive um so you know i remember it it's i still deal with it i've dealt with people who had mild to moderate symptoms who still think it's over exaggerated because their symptoms were mild to moderate and then I've tried to explain to them that I've had patients with reinfections that do not do well. I've tried to explain to them that just because you've had it once does not mean that you're okay with it from now on. But, you know, I've, I've just lost, we just lost a 20-year-old that, I, that grew up with one of my nephews from my hometown. My best friend lost her 19-year-old nephew. Statistically, yes, your your older population and your more vulnerable population are the ones that are going to affect the most. But the, what people do not understand is there is no rhyme or reason to how COVID is going to affect one person versus another. I started working with COVID patients in January, and I just worked a COVID unit last week. I had a two-month hiatus, and we went from two COVID patients to 20 in a matter of a week and a half at one of the facilities I work at. Eight of them are Delta variant. I have gone into a room to tell a patient that they are on 100% BiPAP and still not able to breathe, and we are going to have to intubate them. They have told me, this isn't real. Barely able to breathe on a BiPAP, about to be intubated. I do not understand how this campaign has worked against facts against the severity of this disease, but I have literally had to try to explain reality to people who, some of them did not come off that ventilator alive. I had said, do you want to call anybody? Do you want to talk to your family? Because in my mind, I'm saying, it's time to say goodbye. And they're too busy saying that this disease is not that bad. And I will never understand it. And that has kept me awake. So, you know, early in the pandemic, there was a lot of 
panic about health care providers being able to get access to the protective equipment they needed. Yes. Were you able to get PPE? Yes. Um, I actually had a friend who was part of an organization that helped rural, that was involved with rural health care workers. And they sent me K95s. They even gave me um, head wraps and other, other PPE. Um, at work, you know, our, the masks that we have, the, you know, the surgical default mask, were originally, you know, especially during flu season, were for one room, one time only. And, you know, now it's, we have to wear the, the one mask the entire shift. Um, the same with the N95s, it was supposed to be, you know, one u- room use and everything. And then we had to start putting our names on the inside for recycling and we were supposed to use them up to five times and keep them in a paper bag i remember how i had rarely used one for so long until this and i remember teaching new grads coming in about cluster care you do all the testing in one shot yes So, you know, it turned into, you know, get the blood sugar, give the medicine, give this, take this, take a drink, take this, anything the patient may need all at once. And then that that was exacerbated by what we had discussed earlier, the fact that many of these patients, you know, didn't have visitors. So here it is, they're alone and they're so isolated. And here we are trying to come in as little as possible. Because of the PPE shortage, but at the same time, we wanted to be in there and just hold their hands and tell them that we're there for them at the same time. So have you seen access to supplies even out? I'm still skeptical that we are where we need to be just because we still are um, are told to wear the same mask through a whole shift. So, I mean, if we were to use all of these things properly... I think that we would not be able to keep up. So I am glad that when we I walk into a building, they have a box of masks sitting there for people to come in. But um, if we were to be realistic about you know proper use and how we're supposed to use the disposable masks, I do not think we'd be able to supply that. Especially because, well, um, I, this Delta variant, I do not think will be kind to us. And I do, I do believe there, we're going to have a, a resurge. So thinking about having to reuse PPE, which of course was never the standard before, thinking about the, the doctors and nurses that graduate during this time and, and start you know, working the field, do you think how we think of PPE is going to change? Do you think that they're going to have the same standards as we had in the past? I've, I've questioned that myself because Joint Commission is just now starting to re-enter hospitals. And that's one thing, you know, I said, are they even going to address that? Because, you know, three years ago, we would have been flagged for wearing a mask outside of a patient's room that we wore into there. So... I do think there's going to be a a shift, um, and I think they're going to have to readdress it one way or another because they're either going to have to update 
these standards and rules or they're going to have to provide the PPE to accommodate the use. Because they cannot, we cannot have a limited supply and then they come and flag all of these hospitals for not being able to provide. So aside from COVID, how have you seen nursing change over the years? So much is focused on documentation and surveys versus what the actual outcomes are and the actual care itself. It's, it has ran off a lot of, a lot of really good nurses, I think. People who got into nursing so they can take care of the patient might not have a lot of patience for paperwork. Yes, it's it's a lot. And, you know, you'll have a great shift and feel that you've just done so well and taken great care of a patient. And then you come back the next day and there's a, there's a, they'll say that there was some documentation missing or... You didn't put what time you did this or the it's such minute details that mean so much on the grand scheme of like how you look as a nurse that it it runs it's it runs off um, a lot of good people. I think we had 16 new grads at one of my facilities last year. Only four are still at the bedside. Wow, that's a big attrition rate. Yes. Um, and then not to mention staffing because of that staffing is so short and you have the nurses who are working extra shifts all the time to try to make up for it and then they're getting burned out because it feels as if there's not gratitude you can pick up two shifts in a week and then instead of a thank you we appreciate it so much they'll say can you work another it's the burnout. I've never seen so much burnout. Mm-hmm. Especially during a pandemic, I would think. It'd be very stressful. Yes. And then, you know, a lot of facilities and floors have resorted to mandatory overtime, which is running people off as well. And, you know, for a little while when, when COVID started, um, for a little bit, we had very low census. Few people were, people were scared to come to the hospital, and then after that, you know, a lot of people who should have come did not, and they ended up coming to the hospital sicker. So we had sicker patients when they did come in. So we've we've um, had to deal with acuity adjustments. Sure. So somebody say, oh, there's a pandemic. It's not that bad. I'll just wait. And then they wait. And then they wait. And it gets worse and worse and worse and worse. So by the time they come in, it's bad. And I I saw a lot of that. Um, And then, you know, the staffing, and my my heart is with them because I I know it's difficult. That's why I do not do bed placement or any of that. But, you know, when you you have to get creative with staffing and so nurses get moved around the floors they don't know or not comfortable with you move sometimes you put patients patients that are kind of inappropriate for a floor will go to a place and us, the assignments are just the assignments can be a lot but we can't just leave them in the hallway so thinking about you know the future of nursing 
if someone from a minoritized community, whether a person of color or someone who identifies as LGBTQ or some other group, was considering a career in healthcare, what advice would you have for that person? I would say that you're going to have to prove yourself every step of the way, but it is so worth it because you're needed and we have to keep joining to try to help improve it. I I want I want to see more more people um from from those communities in in healthcare. Yep, the more people we get involved, the more voices that are heard, I think the better quality of care we can provide to everybody. Exactly. It it will it will be all around and you, will you can teach people around you who didn't come from that. Um, because, you know, you you have a lot of nurses that came from a healthcare family. So they come from a background, you know, middle class, some upper middle class. And so they, or, you know, and from a family, an educated family. And so sometimes they do not, they cannot connect with the, very rural patients that we get sometimes or sometimes really urban patients or understand where they're coming from and so if we have more people that know that you know home remedies are usually the first line of defense when a patient gets sick instead of patients people who are used to oh well you know they grew up with really great insurance and if they got sick they got to go get care versus someone like me, who got ginger ale and chicken noodle soup, and the price is right if I was sick. <laughs> that sounds like a very familiar combination to me. <laughs> yes. And then just for about anything else, it was Fletcher's castor oil and <laughs> Tylenol. Oh, uh, yes, indeed. <laughs> so I've got one last question, the question I ask all my guests. If you could do anything what would you do to improve health and health care in rural America? I would teach a bias class to anybody that is entering health care. Sure. Let's think about what things you assume. Yes. Um, I mean, it would give, I would have, I mean, like a full eight-hour class on, you know, what, on A, the, just the communication and how, you know, from the very beginning when you're meeting that patient, how you can, how bias can set up that you hear an accent and you automatically assume that they're less intelligent or, you know, you assume that they have less education or, or any of these things or because of where they're from that they're a drug seeker or, um, but just to raise awareness and to help confirm and actually, I would probably do a recertification class um, to help keep keep that keep the reminders going. Sure. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate your time today. Well, um, I I appreciate you um, listening to me and talking to me. Thank you. Thanks for listening. If you want to be part of the conversation about rural health. Make sure you register for the Rural Health Voice Annual Conference. 
there will be a wide variety of both plenary sessions and interactive discussion at our virtual event. The Rural Health Voice is the podcast of the Virginia Rural Health Association. It is sponsored by the Virginia State Office of Rural Health and underwritten by the National Rural Health Association.